Hi, this is Chris Date, and you're listening to the The Apologetics Podcast, episode 121, It's Not the End. Well, welcome back to another episode of the The Apologetics Podcast. I've got what I think is a great and very interesting interview in store for you today, one with a friend of mine who recently published a new book, and my friend joins me to discuss that book as well as the uh, topic of the contents therein. And before I play the next promo rotation, a uh, promo in my rotation uh, and transition into that inter- interview, I did just want to mention a few things. First of all, it's just a few weeks since we concluded at Rethinking Hell our second uh, conference. This time it was at Fuller Theological Seminary in Pasadena, California, and it went absolutely fantastically. Um, it was uh, it was a wonderful time of fellowship and unity, um, enjoyed in the midst of passionate disagreement on uh, uh, between representatives of each of the three major views of hell. Um, and uh, and I think I think that many of the the presentations that were delivered are things that you'd be interested in listening to or watching. And so I wanted to uh, mention to you that if you go to rethinkinghell.com and scroll through the recent blog posts, you'll find one whose title mentions uh, something about breakout audio. And if you go to that blog post, you'll find links to many of the breakout sessions that were recorded on audio, as well as a link to a YouTube channel where we've got video recordings of some of those breakout sessions. Um, Many of them are very good, and I would encourage that you check them out. But also there's a link in that blog post to a page where you can order a four-DVD box set of the um, plenary speeches that were videotaped, as well as certain of the breakout sessions that were featured at the conference as well. Um, It's a very reasonable price, and, and uh, I think that uh, I think that it's something that you'll enjoy having uh, at your disposal to watch whenever you want to show friends to uh, to discuss in small groups or or, or what have you. Uh, I think there's a lot of material there to uh, to ingest and digest and to discuss. Uh, and we'll be doing just that at Rethinking Hell over the course of the coming months, discussing some of the uh, breakout sessions and arguments that were presented there. Um, uh, also, in in sort of the same vein as my guest today, having published a new book, I wanted to mention that we at Rethinking, Rethinking Hell are on the verge of publishing our second book. Um, we're uh, in the final process of editing right now with the publisher, um, you know, going over typeset proofs that they've put together, making sure that there are no uh, typos and mistakes that still need to be corrected. Uh, but that process is, I think, winding down, and it shouldn't be too much longer before the book is published. It'll be a Festschrift, uh, which is a German word that describes a book published, uh, a collection of essays published in honor of, uh, 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 you know, of somebody that's noteworthy and, and oftentimes on a particular event. In this case, the Festschrift is in honor of Edward Fudge, uh, and it because it col- uh, contains many of the uh, contributions that were uh, made at last year's inaugural Rethinking Hell conference, which was done in honor uh, in honor of Edward Fudge. So, too, this Festschrift is published in honor of Edward Fudge um, on the uh, on the event of his 70th birthday, which is uh, what we were celebrating that weekend last year. So, keep an eye open at Rethinking Hell for links to where you can buy the book once it becomes available. And uh, rest assured, those of you who are interested in our ministry at Rethinking Hell, that we are hard at work on a number of other projects uh, for the upcoming future. Uh, finally, I did just, just want to 
um, ask for your prayers. Uh, I haven't been doing that as much lately, I don't think. I'm not sure that I've been sharing as much of my personal life lately. Um, but I have, over the past several weeks, gotten back on the wagon, so to speak, when it comes to uh, eating healthfully and exercising regularly. I'm uh, lifting, uh, you know, weightlifting again, uh, uh, potentially uh, training for powerlifting competitions and things like that. Um, as well as running and, and swimming and a number of other things. And I'm seeing results already, uh, and I just want to keep the momentum going, and so I would appreciate your prayers. Uh, with all of that out of the way, before we transition into the interview that I have in store for you today, let's go ahead and play the next promo in my rotation, which is for The Dividing Line with James White. Webcasting around the world from the desert metropolis of Phoenix, Arizona, this is The Dividing Line. The Apostle Peter commanded Christians to be ready to give a defense for the hope that is within us, yet to give that answer with gentleness and reverence. Our host is Dr. James White, director of Alpha Omega Ministries and an elder at the Phoenix Reformed Baptist Church. This is a live program, and we invite your participation. If you'd like to talk with Dr. White, call now at 602-973-4602. Or toll-free across the United States, it's 1-877-753-3341. And now with today's topic, here is James White. As many of you know, and to the chagrin of some of you, I suppose, I'm a big fan of Dr. James White, his ministry, Alpha and Omega Ministries, and his webcast, The Dividing Line. Um, James is a polarizing figure, and, uh, you know, I don't agree with all of the uh, the ways in which he communicates, uh, but I do think that he is a fantastic defender of the Reformed tradition, uh, the Reformed understanding of the scriptures, one that I share for the most part. Uh, I also think that he, he does fantastic and very important work in the area of Catholic apologetics and um, Muslim uh, is Islamic apologetics to Muslims. Um, to Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses, um, and, and just overall, I think that he is uh, is just a fantastic uh, minister and apologist and teacher. And I would highly encourage all of you to listen to his show regularly. Um, many times he allows people to call in and ask questions, and you know certainly he and I don't see eye to eye on every issue. Um, but uh, and neither will you. But you know, if, if the only people we listen to are people that we agree one hundred percent with on everything, then um, how are we going to learn anything? So, uh, so I would encourage you to check his webcast out, The Dividing Line. It airs live online at alpha and or at aomin.org most Tuesdays at two p.m. Eastern, and most thur- Thursday afternoons at six p.m. Eastern. Um, you can check out the live video stream on YouTube, uh, or you can just follow the audio stream uh, by going, like I said, to aomin.org slash aoblog slash index.php slash webcast. Uh, if you want to find that a little bit more easily, just go to aomin.org. That's short for Alpha and Omega Ministries. Uh, and click on webcast at the top, and you can find the details there, including the link to how to subscribe to the podcast, the archive of the Dividing Line episodes, which is no longer um, available at, at the location it used to be at. Now, uh, it, the podcast has been moved to Sermon Audio. And so make sure that if you have subscribed to his show in the past, uh, and if you have not listened to it for a while, make sure that you go to aomin.org and click on webcast to find out how to uh, redirect your podcatcher, as it were. So uh, with that, let's go ahead and move into the interview today with my friend and guest, Dee Dee Warren. 
My guest today is a good friend and a repeat guest here on the The Apologetics Podcast. Having been introduced to podcasting by guest hosting her show, The Preterist Podcast, I caught the bug right away and started my own podcast on which I would go on later to interview her first in episode 17 and 18 to discuss eschatology, and later in episode 108 to discuss abortion. Having formerly believed and defended the dispensational futurist view of Bible prophecy, she's come now to the position that the majority of what evangelical churches teach on the subject of eschatology is mistaken. She's a veteran of online theology debates where she cut her teeth and honed the arguments that she presents in the new book that she joins me today to to discuss. It's not the end of the world, a commentary on Matthew 24 and a response to pop Christian theology. Her name, of course, is Dee Dee Warren. And Dee Dee, thank you so much for joining me today. And I'm very glad to be here. Thank you. I've been looking forward to this. Well, good. Uh, I appreciate that. Uh, last time you were on the show was over two years ago, back in March of 2013. And, and, and for those who aren't friends with you or, or aren't connected with you on Facebook, it might appear to them as though you've sort of disappeared off the face of the earth. Uh, can you catch my listeners up with sort of where, where you've been and what you've been up to lately? Well, I pretty much decided to semi-retire from theological work. I had accomplished what I wanted to accomplish, and I felt a very just strong leading to to get out of the online debate world. It was becoming a bit tiring to me, and I felt a a big call on my life to get more community-minded involved and more just involved locally and invested in people's lives. At the time, I thought that would lead me into local ministry. I wanted to avoid a lot of the online conflicts and debates and just the types of people I've met online. So I I retired from that and I started really looking into some local things and God has a tremendous sense of humor. He, He led me into something so much less controversial than theology. So now I'm involved in local politics. Oh, right. Yeah. I like your, your sarcasm there. <laughs> I, and, and I'll be asking you about that in, in a little bit. Um, but, you know, longtime listeners to what used to be your podcast and, and followers of your, of your blog may remember some of the very personal struggles that you were once going through, which culminated in, in your divorce. If, if you don't like that I'm asking this question, I'll edit it out. But if you, uh, if you are comfortable, because some of those listening back then may have been praying for you during that time and, and would love to know how things have turned out, can you sort of share how personal life and married life is treating you now? Things are at my life right now. I would not have guessed it back when things were really, really bad. I've moved from Florida to Colorado. I I did it pretty much on the spur of the moment. I just wanted a change. My only requirement was uh, that it had to be somewhere with mountains. I met, I've been married, remarried now for a year and a half. I met my husband now online. He lived in Colorado. I moved out here. We got married. Things have been wonderful. He's incredibly supportive. Everything that my life wasn't before, it is now. It's just fantastic in that respect. There is hope at the end of the tunnel if you're going through personal issues. But I will say this, and it it surprises a lot of people. I'm very grateful for those personal issues. They made me a lot stronger person and more appreciative of what I do have now. And I wouldn't have actually now, in hindsight, traded it for the world. It almost sounds as if God might have had a purpose in that evil in your life. (laughs) You know, (laughs) go figure, go figure. But yes, and 
in my entire life, I've, I've gone through a lot of radical changes. I'm very open to that. And it happened again. I mean, I never would have figured that I would have been in a different state with a, with a different life and a different outlook and just having the support. Mm. Uh, the, the only thing that's difficult is, and I re- admit this only very reluctantly, is that I'm starting to get a little homesick for Florida and I couldn't stand <laughs> it when I was there. But Colorado is wonderful. Yeah. You know, uh, listeners might recall a certain uh, fear of flying that you once had, and now you're, you know, what, a few thousand miles away or something from Florida. Where Did you fly? To, did you, in moving to Florida did, or to, to Colorado, did you fly? And, and if so, how, how, have, how have those flights gone? We actually drove here in a U-Haul with the big fat dachshund and two parrots and us two in the front seat. Oh, okay. So that was an adventure, but I do fly. I... Actually, I have to take a lot of Valium. I'm sorry if that offends anybody, but I do have a terrible phobia of flying. But I've determined that's not going to hold me back. I've I've flown to Florida uh, once since then. I've been out to Nevada and going to Florida again next year. So I just buck up and do it and try to remind myself that God has not given us a spirit of fear. And it's difficult. I'm terrible. It's it's not the flying I mind. It's Mm. the crashing that I mind. Sure. Yeah, I get that. Yeah, you know, we we talked about politics a moment and I a moment ago, and I said I'd come back to it. In in the preface to your book, uh, you encourage readers to follow you on Facebook, where you say you discuss theology, sewing, and libertarian politics. But I think, and and I I think you would you would forgive somebody for thinking that it seems or might seem like one of those three issues receives much more of your attention than the others, Uh, without necessarily disagreeing with many elements of the political view that you now hold. Some longtime fans might think that you've become a little imbalanced or overly focused on politics. Uh, what, what would you say to those who might have that concern? Well, right now, probably 99.9% of my posts are political. And I think that's natural when you come to an entirely different point of view that you had before. Mm. And a criticism that it's unbalanced is probably perfectly fair. And I think, though, at this level of exploration, it's somewhat natural. Mm. And I expect that will get a little bit more balanced. But right now, yeah, that order should probably be in in a different order. (laughs) But there's a whole... It's, it's, and I hate to compare politics and religion, and I don't mix politics and religion, but when you have a fundamental philosophical worldview shift, it's almost like when you were a new Christian. That probably was all you talked about for quite some time. Mm. And having a different political worldview shift in some way is analogous and that I'm excited about it. I'm learning new things about it. I want to discuss it with everyone. And I'm sure that that will taper off and probably in five years I'll be like, eh, think what you want. Kind of, kind of like I do with some other things. But yes, it, it is a fair criticism right now to probably say it's a tad bit unbalanced. Well, maybe here's one more criticism. I, I like to try to be a little heavy hitting and, and I'm not necessarily representing my own concerns here. But maybe here's one that you may not think is a fair criticism. Um, one, one friend of mine expressed this criticism to me personally. He, his, his concern had to do with the language that you've become comfortable using at times online. And, and I think even leading up to this interview, you warned me that I might have to have my bleep button ready or something like that. Um, how, how would you respond to those fellow Christians who, who are somewhat critical of your use of that kind of language language uh publicly like on facebook 
I would also say that is somewhat of a fair criticism. And let me explain. I have never, well, I'm not going to say never, but as I've gotten older and moved away from fundamentalism and fundamentalism has been very damaging to me. So I might be reacting in an overreaction, but I have never felt found arbitrary language rules to be particularly <laughs> helpful. I think sometimes it's the content and spirit of what you say and not a certain arrangement of certain letters. But I will say that due to political involvement and things like that, I hang around with a lot fewer Christians than I used to. And you do become a chameleon for good or for evil. And my language is probably reflected in that I don't hang around a lot of Christians. And that's not saying to criticize them at all. But I've adopted maybe the habits of the world a little bit. And that is something I am going to work on toning down. But my posts will never be full of I darn you to heck and stuff like that. <laughs> because I've never talked like that. You probably will see a few scatological phrases always appear on my Facebook um, posts. But they probably are a little bit too spicy. And so that is a fair criticism but in my defense you know i rarely drop the f-bomb fair enough uh and, and just so our listeners in, in, in case they didn't catch it you said scatological not yes. eschatological <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> okay well you know i hope that answers some of the questions that that maybe some of your longtime fans and followers of yours uh might have and i want to turn now to those listening who haven't heard the interview that i did with you back on uh, a few years ago on eschatology and who aren't already familiar with you and your history, and also those who haven't had any exposure to alternatives to popular views of the end times, uh, so-called. Um, and so before we get into your book, let's do a little bit of an introduction. Um, and, and, and if listeners want to learn more about your story, uh, they can go back to episode 17 and listen to it. So, so just briefly, obviously not terribly briefly, you can only do so much. Summarize for us the view that you once believed and defended after becoming a Christian concerning the end times and which is so popular in mainstream America, American churches today. Okay. I was saved in a Calvary chapel and was taught very well there. And I believed what would be called the typical dispensational, dispensational futurist view, which would be that what we commonly believe is the end times is in our future. And all of that even might be unfolding before our eyes. And we're looking forward to the to the rapture of the church. And, you know, whether it's going to be before the seven year tribulation or after, or in the middle, it, it, it's I believed in a, in a pre tribulation rapture, there's basically everything that would have been set out in the left behind book. When I was reading the left behind book, it pretty much was like a Bible commentary, <laughs> as far as I was concerned. So I once I really, thought that too, by the way. <laughs> I mean, I was excited by it. Yeah. And I really thought that that was the correct teaching. I was taught it by my church, and it was backed up by a lot of, you know, really popular teachers. And and I held to that hook, line, and sinker, and actually, you know, def didn't just hold to it. I, I defended it. And it was in defending it that I began to see cracks in it and started to 
look into another uh, another point of view. Well, and we'll get there. I want to talk about those cracks, though. Um, I think it was uh, on Facebook. I recently say you recently saw you say something along the lines of, and this isn't a verbatim quote, but something along the lines of that abandoning that former view was kind of the result of a thousand paper cuts or something like that. Walk us through what that what you mean when you use an analogy like that, and and and, and give us some examples of what these little cuts eventually had the the impact that it had on the view that you held. Yeah, I did say that. I was analogizing it to to current changes, but I said that basically this a strongly held points of view are generally they're um they suffer the death of a thousand cuts. You you rarely change your mind on something in one fell swoop. It can happen, but generally that doesn't happen. Mm. So with my futurism, the the very and I I won't forget this the the very first thing that caused me to challenge it wasn't uh, – and I probably should have a Bible in front of me, but I can't find my glasses and everything. <laughs> such small print, but you'll help me out, I'm sure, and, and, and listeners, I presume, are going to have a little bit of familiarity with the topic. But the first verse that caused me to start to doubt this wasn't any of the typical timing verses that people think, but it was the great resurrection passage in 1 Corinthians 15 where – when I read it, I just did not see any room for this millennium. It seemed to me that that passage was teaching that after Christ was raised, he was reigning now, and that there was a special period of time that w- would be considered the messianic reign. And when that was over, everyone was resurrected, death was destroyed, and then was the final state. So my premillennialism started to crack. Mm. And that really troubled me. But, you know, if anyone says that their particular perspective is going to check off every little box and is going (laughs) to, you know, fit in this box perfectly, they're fooling themselves. So I kind of just accepted that as well. This is one of those things that maybe I I can't explain. And I'm kind of comfortable with that. But then I just started reading some others and it's like another little slice and another little slice till the point that I just couldn't maintain the view any longer. And I think that's the way most people and I would say probably even yourself with some of the views that you hold that are more minority came to those views. Sure. It wasn't in one thing. It was just the, the these tiny little foundational cracks that pretty soon you realize if you're going to be honest with yourself, you cannot uphold the structure any longer. Well, let's talk about the impact that that at least initially had on you, because in the in the preface of your book, you write of the despair of having your your worldview turned upside down, almost to the point of losing your faith. Explain that for us, and also, do you think that that's a phenomenon? The, the having one faith's one's faith really almost shattered uh, when one sees the premillennial dispensation futurist view of these texts sort of begin to, uh, to, to, to really fail to live up to what the text is saying. Do, do you think that that phenomenon is maybe more common than futurists and premillennialists might like to admit? You know, I can't answer that question for a couple of reasons, but I'll, I'll give my opinion. Uh, that's what you're asking is for my opinion. So I guess <laughs> I'll just have to preface this by the fact that big shock, I tend to have an extremist personality. So I have these wild fluctuations. So t- for me, for someone like me who gets like when they're into something, I mean, they're into it. 
to have something that you so fervently believe questioned is kind of devastating. So somebody with my personality type, I would think that is somewhat common. But what did it wasn't necessarily the radical view change because I went from being an Arminian slower process to being reformed and that didn't have that kind of impact. It was that I ran into a particular group of people, the hyperpreterists, that not only affirmed that what that everything I had thought before was wrong, but that everything the whole church thought on anything about eschatology was wrong. Mm. And that really makes you wonder if you can know anything. So it wasn't just changing my perspective that did it. It was changing my perspective and then starting to think that everything I thought was absolutely heretical was in fact true. And then how can we really know if anything's true? I mean, uh-huh. what then is up for grabs? So if I hadn't run into the hyperpreterist, if I had run into a solid orthodox preterist person, I probably wouldn't have had those struggles. But I I tend to start questioning things in any area of life. And then I just go on the internet and do research. And boy, you know, there's no filter there. And you can run into some stuff that if you tend to dwell on things the way I do, it, it can impact you very negatively. But so I wouldn't say that's necessarily normative, but not unusual. Mm. Well, you know, it's interesting because I guess what I had in mind, and, and I neglected to remember that that was the direction that your story took. But what I had in mind was, you know, there are texts that we're going to be discussing during the course of this interview that do seem to be very to very clearly say something happened um, that given a certain understanding that you once had, didn't in fact happen. And so I wonder if sometimes futurists who understand that what Jesus is talking about in certain texts is a certain future event that we're going to be talking about. That's why I'm kind of being vague and, you know, but I sometimes wonder if they think, well, gosh, maybe, maybe Jesus got this wrong, you know, or whatever. And I wonder if, if you think that might be uh, somewhat common. You know, I didn't even think of that because that probably was a portion and this now has been a past, uh, it's been a while. I've, I've pretty steady in this view. I've had it for a while. This book probably took about 10 years to write and all. So yeah, I think that would be a portion too, where you might, maybe that wasn't so big of an impact on me because I immediately started finding plausible plausible answers or mm. I was convinced right away there was an answer other than Jesus was wrong. Gotcha. But I do know people who have read these. I mean, you can go online to any of these really hyper skeptical sites and most of them will list as reasons why they do not believe the Bible or do not believe Christianity is some of these issues. And one positive impact I can say, and one thing that I'm particularly proud of as a personal accomplishment is I've interacted on the subject with a fair number of atheists. Mm. And most of them, even though I haven't convinced them necessarily of Christianity, but then again, I'm highly doubtful you can argue anyone into into Christianity um, coming from my my reform perspective. But I will say with the, with the atheists who are familiar with my work, a lot of them have dropped this argument as being mm. a particularly strong argument against Christianity. And in fact, you may have saw on my wall today, there's a good atheist friend of ours up here that I sent a copy of the book and he's reading it and really and in, in, in saying it's it's well argued it's well researched and to me that means a lot sure he's not going to be convinced 
necessarily of Christianity, but he may be convinced that we're not all crazy to not think this is that big of a deal. And I honestly think that these quote unquote problem passages are one of the strongest proofs now in favor of Christianity. There there might be other passages that people can point to, and I would be lying if I said that there weren't still passages in the Bible that troubled me, because there are, um, but these aren't them. Right. These haven't been them in a long time, and if, if, God forbid, tomorrow I were to lose my faith, I would never use this as an argument against the faith, because it, it's strong right. and coherent. Yeah. Yeah. And I can relate, incidentally, to uh, to your feeling that these are some of the strongest uh, evidences uh, for the Christian faith. I tell people that all the time. I use that argument in discussing with, with uh, agnostics and atheists and stuff. But um, and, and that'll come up again toward the end of this uh, conversation. But let's let's stop speaking in, in vague, <laughs> nebulous terms about what it is that you actually do believe. When it comes to the passage that we're talking about in Matthew 24 and some other ones, but in particular this one, um, what is it that you do believe uh, – uh, and, and that goes in, that co- in contrast with what it is that you once believed, you know, the left behind stuff and so forth. My my present belief is that the vast majority of passages that we would associate with the quote unquote end times and particularly Matthew 24 are not referring I, I hate to say at all, because I think all of the Bible has some kind of echoes and applicability to us, but is not referring at all primarily to our future whatsoever, that it's referring to events that happened in the past within the, the lifetime of Jesus's listeners, specifically referring to the destruction of the Jewish temple in AD 70. So most of the passages that, that people would think, um, May, maybe even referring to things that are about to happen in our, in our lifetime are in fact well in the past and serve to, to vindicate Jesus's claims at the time. So this would include, uh, Matthew chapter 24, at least up to verse 34 and the majority of the book of Revelation. Um, Daniel, most of Daniel nine, I'm trying to remember it, you know, in my head to make sure there isn't anything that I, I would still say is unfolding at this point, but it would be almost everything that your typical evangelical Christian would say no. Or, you know, the, the great the great tribulation that that's something that happened in the past. It's it's done. It's not something that we're to be looking forward to today. Okay, that's that's good. You're obviously a crazy heretic. Um, so, so I may be a crazy heretic, but not for this issue. <laughs> there you go. Exactly. Well, okay. So so with all of that sort of prolegomena out of the way, let's start talking about your book specifically. And and uh, I want to caution my readers not to expect from this interview a thorough defense of this view that you and I share and which you present in your book. My goal here is to spark listeners' interest into uh, into buying it so that they'll read it uh, and um and 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 dive into the the material that presented much more detail there in the book because I think that it's your book that's going to answer a lot of the questions and objections that they have far better than you would have the time to do so today. So with that disclaimer out of the way, why don't you tell our readers or listeners a little bit about the genesis of and the the story behind your book? What what is it that eventually culminated in its publication? Well, when I started exploring these issues, I 
was involved in debate forums, and I was the type of person that tended to save my posts. So I didn't have to reinvent the wheel once I thought I had an answer to something or once somebody gave me some more information. So I have this this file on my in, in my computer that's just like every verse, you know, just notes and notes and notes and notes, and there are thousands of pages of notes. And then when I, I started to, to become really convinced of this view, it's probably... I, I put the time frame in my book, and I'm going to guess uh, if I, I trust what I wrote and not what I'm saying. If, if there's a contradiction, <laughs> because I actually looked things up when I wrote it, 2004 ish, I invited some skeptical, not skeptical as an atheist, but futurist type Christians. Um, between myself and a few other people, we just had an informal verse by verse discussion um, where I was just not necessarily trying to convince them of my point of view. And I'm really not in the book necessarily trying to convince anyone of my point of view. That would be wonderful if I did. But I was trying to convince them that it's reasonable and that those who disagree with you are not insane. Um, so I had, <laughs> I'm sorry, Chris, but I had to like, I almost said something inappropriate. <laughs> <laughs> I got my bleep button ready. Don't yeah, I almost did. And now I'm, and now I'm cracking myself up thinking about that. So after that discussion, I realized I had this mini verse by verse commentary. And like many books today that are written from maybe people who ended up with pop popular blogs and they just turned all their blog posts into a book, I was thinking it would be a shame for this just to be between maybe the four or five people that was in this discussion. And at that point, I decided I was going to write a book. I took all of these posts, put them into, into one, and then fleshed it out from there. Because obviously, a forum discussion is extremely informal, and it doesn't have footnotes. And I had to go back and you know make sure I was giving proper attribution and things like that. But that's basically where it started from like a year-long very friendly forum discussion. We're just trying to convince people of the reasonableness and plausibility of this point of view. Yeah. And, and for a long time, you, uh, when your website was still up, this commentary was available for free download, um, knowing that full well that the time would, you planned to, uh, the time was going to come where you, you hope to publish it. Um, well, and so, and so I guess that leads me to ask this question. In terms of the commentary itself, we'll, we'll talk about the appendices in a moment. Is there anything that people can expect in your book that's new or different or improved or whatever? People who might have already read or even downloaded that commentary that you used to make publicly available on your website. Yes. Well, first, there's going to be some stylistic, maybe form issues in that when I first put it up on the website, it was just those forum posts, boom, 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 one after another, very informal, a lot of spelling mistakes, a lot of grammar mistakes, some citations missing, things like that. And when I first put it up, again, it was that skeletal outline. And over the decade that I had it up, there was a constant update log, which I don't know if you were aware of, but I was updating it constantly. I was fleshing out arguments more. I was putting in more supporting quotes. So depending upon when somebody actually read it, it may have changed a lot already online. I mm. made hundreds of updates to it. But at some point when I stopped updating it because I started doing my podcast and I started putting it more onto paper to be formal in a book, I fleshed, fleshed out a lot of my arguments as far as how to determine what's necessarily in the past and what's necessarily in the future and my point of view regarding what about after 
verse 34 and Matthew 24. And how does some of the other passages tie in? And those were not in the online commentary. I kind of dropped off at verse 34 and posted some scattered thoughts about what I thought about, Mm -hmm. you know, a potential transition verse. And that's flushed out a whole lot more, at least I think so in the book. You might have your opinion on that, but that is some additional material. But that material was in my podcast, at least maybe 80% of it. So the podcast had even greater material that than was online. Mm. So I guess it, it all depends upon at what point somebody may have discovered my work, but it certainly is. And, and, and I moved some things around. I realized that when you sat down and you read from page one to, I'm not joking, page 300 um, <laughs> on one chapter in the Bible, uh, that some of the arguments didn't flow so well or didn't make so much sense. So there is a lot of moving things around and smoothing out arguments, which I think has a value in and of itself. Sure. Not to have the distraction of some of the really blatant, just misspelled words and grammar (laughs) and things like that, but it was free. And I was pretty much, if you like it, you like it. If not, you're not, you know, everyone's a critic. You didn't pay for it. So the material's there. Well, and as I hinted at a moment ago, the, the you know whatever is new in the commentary isn't the only things that are well that may be new to some readers. I mean, there's there's also some articles that you included in the back uh, uh, in the appendices that that are no longer available since the Preterist site is no longer available. Um, what, what are give me give me some of the examples of the of the articles that you think readers uh, might be interested in and which they no longer have access to at the site? Sure, and see, sometimes you you gotta really hit me over the head with the obvious plank because I don't know what you're getting at. So now. I'm I know what you're getting at with that, at least. I I ran a, I didn't just, I had the Predator site. I also had a blog and uh, there were some important articles that were done on the blog and maybe published independently on the site that I thought were important enough to include in the book, but didn't really fit in the main subject matter. Right. So I included them as, as appendices. And I believe there's, I can't count A, B, C, D, there's five <laughs> appendices. And those are, I, I think, some of the, the most important things that I had done that was outside of the actual, um, actual commentary itself. And that's another reason why I decided to self, why I, I you might have been getting asked me this, but I'd like to throw this right out here. A lot of people will write things off that are self-published. This was self-published through Zulon. Just as a shout out, if anyone is considering self-publishing, they were nothing but a pleasure to work with, and I couldn't recommend them higher. But that aside, I, one reason I decided to do that is I wanted to have every single piece of material that I thought was valuable without it being edited down to someone else's opinion in the book. So I wanted to include five appendices that probably – would have been cut out. And this book probably would have been 200 pages, you know, if, if I had attempted to do it more traditionally. And I think, I think all of the material to someone who's really tediously studying this will be valuable. Mm. In the appendices, I deal a lot more with hyperpreterism that I didn't do so much within the main text of the commentary because I felt that that distracted from it. So, those appendices will be valuable for people who are interested in that particular subject. And there, there was one article that I wrote in specifically to the issue of not proving whether hyperpreterism is wrong in their interpretations, but it was always very important to me 
whether or not that was a point of view we could simply agree to disagree on or whether it was a point of view that we need to part fellowship on. I am, and, and I don't like using this word because it's going to turn off a lot of your listeners, but I think it's accurate. When it comes to theological issues, I'm way more liberal than a lot of people. I do not part fellowship over a lot of choose. I have a very high level of tolerance. It may be too much, but what that basically means, if there's an issue that I got to the point that says, whoa, that's too far, then you probably (laughs) could be pretty sure that that's too far Mm. because I have a very high threshold and I am not a heretic yeller. I don't like it. But in this particular point of view, I do think it's absolutely outside the pale of orthodoxy. So I, I have an article in the end that demonstrates why I think that what what the – if for someone who's already convinced that they're wrong, because I'm not trying in that article to prove they're wrong, if you are convinced they are wrong, what needs to be your fellowship attitude towards that particular point of view? Right, and and for those of our listeners who who are a little uh, not who aren't familiar with the language, the, the term hyperpederast and stuff, you know, incidentally, you have another article in the, in the appendices uh, addressing the fact that these uh, that these people are more commonly known under the label full preterists or something like that, and that's a whole other discussion that we don't have time for today. Although, as you know, I share your passion on that. But but for those listeners who aren't familiar with the group of people we're talking about who are called who who are unfortunately sometimes called full preterists, and you and I are calling hyperpreterists, what is it they believe that, that places them outside the bounds of Orthodox Christianity um, at, rather, than, rather than an acceptable disagreement you know, with which we can fellowship uh, with them? Okay, and, and I do want to add one thing, only because I still am a, friends with a lot of hyperpreterists. So this isn't something I'm trying to make personal. It is strictly a theological issue. And I would just want to make that clear because I, I hate making theology personal. And there are some wonderful people that hold wrong points of view. That being said, they believe that the entire whole of Christian eschatology, meaning there is uh, the, the the final advent, which some people would call the second coming, the resurrection, the consummation, the new heavens and the new earth, all of the promises in Scripture are have their point of fulfillment, even though there might be continuing effects, because th- this would be considered the permanent effect, have... It, have their point in the past. So all of this was fulfilled in the first century. Now, I know some hyperpreterists are going to hear us and go, that's not what I think. I'm giving a general overview of what the majority of them think. Mm. There will be some outliers that might differ on a point here and a point there. But generally, it's the fact that they think the resurrection is in the past, that the consummation is in the past, that the destruction of death is in the past, that, you know, that the destruction of sin is in the past. And that places one outside, um, outside the pale of orthodoxy. The resurrection is one of the most important doctrines in the Christian faith. And if you deny our future bodily resurrection by logical implication and by explicit biblical passages, you undermine at best and deny at worst the meaning and nature of Christ's resurrection. Yeah. 
Yep. Well, I fully agree, and I hope we, I hope, I hope readers will uh, or listeners will buy the book just for those two articles that we're talking about. Perfuming the hog is one of them, and the other one is called Grave, Grave Error, uh, or, or I've already see I've already forgotten the title, but it has to do with grave error and, and error of hyperpreterism. I've got it right here in front of me. Um, it's <laughs> I'm terrible. I'm a terrible interviewer. It, it's called uh, Grave Error: Hyperpreterism and the Response of the Church, and then the other one that I like is Semantics: Perfuming the Hog. So hopefully, uh, listeners will will check it out for even for just those two articles alone. But um, we are talking about primarily the commentary captured by your book, and some listening right now are going to probably fall into one or the other of two extremes that you describe at the end of your first chapter. Um, either thinking, as you put it, that eschatology is a eschatology is a nonchalant educational exercise, you know, no big deal, or on the other hand, that it is an orthodoxy test, untouchable and unassailable. Tell us about what you call a third way manned by what you call a mere sliver of a crew, a crew that will hopefully include some of our listeners. Okay, this is going to make you laugh. I haven't read my book in a long time. <laughs> <laughs> so, again, believe what I wrote and not what I say. It might be a little bit different. I, I, this may supplement it. It's not it, – it, it, it's not the end all and be all and you shouldn't be obsessed with this, but it's highly important. It eschatology is woven throughout the entire it's in the old testament but we're speaking i'm speaking to christians so the import the primacy importance of the new testament i i believe that it's absolutely impossible to really understand the message of the new testament without having a coherent appreciation for eschatology and one thing that i would um and kingdom theology. And, and one way I would point to the importance of this is that a kingdom passage, which is Psalm 110, which you know how in love I am with that passage, and I would marry it if I could, <laughs> that it's quoted, most people don't know, it's quoted or alluded to more, to, it's the Old Testament passage quoted or alluded to more times in the New Testament than any other passage, and most Christians don't even know what it is. And to me, that's a shame. And once you dive into that passage and you look at all the places that it is quoted or alluded to in the New Testament, it's all very eschatological-minded passages. Mm. So I think it's very fundamental if we realize how important this was to the New Testament authors, for at least to have in a place of importance in our own life. It might not affect the way you're going to treat your neighbor or, you know, your duties to, to the church or, or some of your more found, everyday activities, but it is going to shape your appreciation of your place in the kingdom and where we as a humanity or as a, a Christian body is headed. So I do think it is very, very important, but it's certainly not a salvational issue. But if you want to have the fullness of the understanding of the faith, I think it's critical. Did, I hope that made sense. It does, and and I wonder if you think that perhaps, as somebody who's been on both sides of this fence, that that perhaps the the, the debate between uh, monergism and synergism is, is 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 similar in that regard. It's not critical to salvation, um, but but your your understanding of what it is to be saved and and how you got saved and and uh, God's nature or God's role in salvation and so forth. Those these things change to a certain degree based on which view of that debate you fall on. Do you know what I mean? They do. So I would consider that I would consider that a good analogy. And I might say in something now the reform people are all gonna <laughs> suck in their breath, but I actually think eschatology is more important. Mm. Um it that might I might not be able to support that. This is something that's just like a gut feeling that I have, and it's not a hill I would die on. But I 
the way the way we're actually saved and the 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 whole way that our wills work with monergism and things like that i i don't I think the Bible teaches on it, but it doesn't give us as comprehensive of a picture and leaves a lot of it. And here's another word that people aren't going to like to mystery. And I'm, I'm okay with that. I think a whole lot more has been revealed to us about the workings of eschatology Mm. and, and maybe it's just me because I've spent so much time in this, but my understanding of the character of the Christian faith and the work of Christ, and I know a lot of Reformed people won't like this, is much more informed by my eschatology than my soteriology. But maybe it's because I'm just, I'm a very simple monergist. I don't get into all the ins and outs of the de- uh, of the debate. I, when I did my podcast that said why I changed my view, I gave one simple uh, question why I changed my view, and it th- it's the same today. Yeah, it's to me, it's still just the one simple question. I've never had the need to go further in that. To me, it's God is God. God is God and I'm not. And, you know, I'm sure someone like Dr. James White would be jumping up and down and disagreeing (laughs) with me here on this. So this is just a different perspective. I could be wrong, but that's that's my my gut spiritual reaction. In the event that Dr. White is listening, I think you and I are pretty good fans. We have our criticisms, I think, but I think we're both fans, and uh, I, I, I wouldn't want him thinking that we're knocking on on, on Dr. White. Um, maybe I shouldn't speak for you. I'm still – I'm a fan of his even though, like I said, I have some criticisms. Anyway, I'm, I'm going off on a tangent. What I want to do is, is talk a little bit about a few of the points that you make in your commentary that I hope will convince listeners that there might just be enough to this seemingly bizarre and foreign view that we have uh, to justify buying a copy of your book and reading more. And, and, and I want to begin with the background and lead up in Matthew to the Olivet Discourse uh, as you recount in chapter one where you introduce it. So explain that for us. Who it is that is the subject of Jesus' judgment language leading up to the discourse and why that's so important for properly interpreting it. The Jesus' words, while applicable to this today, are very firmly rooted in his direct audience, and it needed to make sense and be extremely relevant to the people he was speaking to. And he came to a specific people, his own people, the majority of which obviously not all had rejected him. So the judgment language at that time is directed to a very specific time-bound group of people. And that would have been the the certain Jewish leaders and certain people in the populace at that time that rejected him. And we can't import that into our future, and we can't import that into any um, – you know, judgment, I, I guess just into our future. We, I think sometimes we have to be really cautious when we're dealing with this passage. And I'm very sensitive to the fact that some people may hear that and think that you're saying something that's against Jewish people. Mm. And, and that's not it at all. And in fact, I, I, that would horrify me. And the, the very fact that it is limited to a certain group in the first century, I think, is, is a tremendous corrective to this because the church had sinned greatly um, throughout its history and its treatment of the Jewish people by taking very specific first century judgment passages and importing them unjustly and unethically onto an entire group of people when it was just a, pr- a particular group of people at a particular time. Um, 
so I, I think that's highly important. So leading up to Matthew 24, he is dealing with his contemporaries that were rejecting a message that had been entrusted to them that they should have known was being fulfilled before their eyes. And as the the years of his ministry go forward, this judgment motif keeps building and building and building. And unless you see that, that crescendo going up to Matthew mm-hmm. 24, it's very easy to think that Matthew 24 then is about us, but it's not. Yeah. So that is extremely important. And that insight is, and, and I put this in the book, is almost entirely something that I gleaned from Kenneth Gentry, who does phenomenal job in his works of really flushing that out even more. I give a bare outline to it because I really want to concentrate on Matthew 24 itself. But it is critical to understand the importance. You can't understand any particular uh, passage in strict isolation, like Greg Kokel likes to say, never read a Bible verse. You know, you, you have to read the entire context. And the, the context of Matthew 24 is the entire Gospel of Matthew. Right. And, and, and there's another element to that context. As you explain in Chapter 2, Climbing Mount Olivet, uh, Matthew 24 begins with Jesus' disciples asking him a very particular question that really goes hand-in-hand uh, hand with, with what we've just discussed, this, the particular people at a particular time to which Jesus had been directing so much of his judgment language. They ask him a particular question or a set of questions that, that's got to inform our interpretation of his answer. What, what is it that they asked him, and, and what does their question tell us about his answer? Well, go to, to back up a tiny bit, we have to remember that we first we have to have an appreciation for the importance of the temple in life then. And, and I'm not so sure we can necessarily understand it, but we have to try. So Jesus was actually at the temple, which was just the, the focus of, of their spiritual and social lives. And he pronounced that this magnificent permanent place was going to be torn down. And then when he went up Mount Olivet, this was still on the disciples' minds. And what they asked him about was his statement. And he was standing at in the temple at a particular time, and it was the temple that existed back then, not some future temple. He was very specific because he said, these stones, the ones you're looking at now that you see here, the ones here right now, one shall not be left upon another, it shall not be thrown down. And the, the disciples were extremely disturbed by this, and they asked him, when shall these things be? Meaning the things he just said. Mm. When will this temple be destroyed? Um, what, when will we know that this is about to take place? But what makes it very interesting and what people don't pick up on, because we tend to read our full understanding of the New Testament back into what the disciples would have known at that time. And the interesting question they ask him is, you know, when will these things be? They then say, what shall be the sign of your coming? And that's really interesting because you can search up and down in um, the context of the Gospels up to that point, Jesus never explicitly taught that he was even going to leave. They didn't understand that. If he taught it, they didn't even get it. They they argued with him. They thought he was going to be setting up a kingdom then. Mm. So when they asked him, what, 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 what will be the sign of your coming? We can't read our modern understanding of the second coming into a passage when they didn't even understand there was going to be a first going, yeah. never mind a second coming. And that should then inform us, well, what, 
what did they understand the phrase? Why would they call it a coming? And they understood that he was taking a divine prerogative and pronouncing judgment upon the temple, which is something that God had done in the past for the um, punishment of the nation. So, and when God had done that in the past, the way the, the Old Testament Jews described it was that God came to his people. He came in judgment. So when Jesus pronounced judgment on this temple, they immediately recognized the Old Testament themes and asked him, well, when are you going to, what'll be the sign of your coming? Asking, when are you going to do this judgment? Nothing in their question required him to actually physically go anywhere. Right. And that really is very important. And we have to understand that from this point forward. And when Jesus goes on to explain this, you got to remember, he continuously referred to himself as the son of man, which had them think back to the son of man figure in Daniel. And the son of man figure in Daniel is said to be coming on the clouds to receive his kingdom. This was all kingdom judgment language. And that is basically what they were, were asking him. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's it's interesting. I wonder if oh, so I remember what I was about to say. So, and this this I think is really important. We we can't assume that Jesus, or we, I don't think we'd be justified without substantial evidence for thinking that Jesus is answering a question that they didn't even ask. And that's and that's something that's really important to me here is that if they're asking him about coming in judgment, then we we without really substantial evidence to the contrary sh- shouldn't be thinking that what he's doing is is answering a question about the second coming which they weren't even asking him about in the first place. Do you know what I mean? Exactly. They it would have been it would have been incomprehensible to them. He would have really ignored their question. And the fact is the context of the rest of the specifics of his answer are really dealing with the destruction of the temple. There's there's no reason to think without a big clue in his words. And I and I do think at one point there is a clue that he expands the subject. Yeah. But he does answer those questions. Right. If he answers more than that, okay. But those questions they weren't asking about the second coming. So even if he, we can argue that he eventually ties it in, that's not an answer to their question. And their questions were answered. And we right. need to be able to see what that answer is. Now, when someone new to this debate first tries to put on these glasses that you and I wear and, and to read the Olivet Discourse as if it is about events that were fulfilled not long after they were prophesied in our distant past, one of the things that's likely to first trip them up, the, 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 to first seem impossible to fit within that time frame, is Jesus' statement in verse 14 that this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. And perhaps that's why it's the first verse to which, by itself, you dedicate an entire chapter, uh, chapter 6, which you call, Can I Get a Witness? So so how, how do you explain this? How, how could every nation in the entire world have been reached with the gospel nearly 2,000 years ago across oceans and on other continents and, and, and such like that? Well, I would say that we need to understand the New Testament language on its own terms, and we can't import our meanings into those terms. And something that's very common in the, the Bible as a whole is what we call universal, universalistic language that isn't meant to be taken entirely literally. And we see this, well, it, it's meant to be taken literally in its own way. And, and, and the example I give is if I, 
to, to just move it into modern terms, if I say to you it's raining cats and dogs outside, I do mean something literal by that. I mean it's literally raining very hard outside. And you would be taking me literally if you grabbed an umbrella. You would not be taking me literally if you grabbed a kennel. Mm. And I think we need to do that with the New Testament and see how this universal language is used. When earlier in the birth narratives, and it says that, census was taken of the whole world. Nobody believes that, you know, the South American Indians (laughs) were censored at that time and they paddled over to get counted. So throughout the New Testament, we see this universal language and it's meant to mean their world, the the entire inhabited world that was familiar to them, i.e. the Roman Empire. Paul uses this language in this way as well. Paul says in his lifetime that the gospel was preached to every creature under heaven. Well, certainly I don't think that meant the buffaloes in North America, but Paul meant it in a way they would understand. It It was an exaggeration for effect that we even do today. And we don't mean things, you, you know, this in that literal sense. And I'm sure we could think of all sorts of examples that, that we, we do that. And so I think it was meant to mean it, it, this gospel is going to be preached throughout the whole world that has significance to you, your world, your lives, the, the Roman world. Empire, the known world, the known world to them. Right. Because obviously they're, the Mormons will tell you there were people living <laughs> over here, but that isn't who is being referred to. And if you, if you, and I detail this out in the chapter that this whole world language is very common in the New Testament. This isn't a guess on my part. We can prove very literally that either Paul was really crazy or he meant something different by every creature under heaven preached to the whole world or the whole earth. It's very, very common terminology and we have to take it on its own terms. So while to our modern ears, where you have to say it's obvious what it says, you have to ask obvious to whom Mm. Um, it needs to be obvious to the people it was originally written to and not to our modern sensibilities. So that passage I actually think isn't difficult at all. And I think anyone who really gives a a, a fair comparing scripture, what scripture will see, whether we like it or not, that's the way they use the language. Yeah. And you know what just literally occurred to me is that um, if... If that's true, and it seems to me irrefutable that that is in fact true, that that's how that language is used, and that Paul said the very same thing in his lifetime, if that's true, then that would not just simply answer this objection from the uh, dispensationalist or the futurist or the premillennialist who's 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 skeptical of what we're what we're saying. It would actually render this passage better support for our view because Jesus doesn't say that this will happen before it comes. He says this will happen, and then the end will come. Suggesting that if Paul was in fact saying that the gospel was preached to the whole world in this way, then it must not have been very long after that before what Jesus is talking about was to come to pass. Do you know what I mean? Or at least the precondition for it had come to pass. And I think that is that is extremely relevant and important. If this had to happen first, and we can show that the understanding of the Apostle Paul was that it was already happened, well, that obstacle is out of the way. Well, and that's what I'm saying is that I think it does more than just remove the obstacle. I think that Jesus says, then the end will come. In other words, he doesn't say the gospel will be preached in the whole world, and then sometime later at some indefinite point in the future, the end will come. 
Right. right? He says, this will happen and then this will happen. And if right. Paul says the first of those things happened, we have good reason to suspect that what Jesus that then said would happen next, you know, would have happened very shortly after Paul. Uh, but let me move on to another verse as they, as, as the listeners I'm describing are reading through the discourse and they're trying to see things from our perspective. Another verse that is going to probably seem to them impossible to square with our view is verse 21, in which Jesus warns of a great tribulation such as not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. You address this one in chapter 9 called the death of their world, and, and you put the objection well. Surely, you say, World War II and the Holocaust were much more, uh, much worse than the destruction of Jerusalem. So, so, Didi, how, how could Jesus have said what he did uh, about this being unlike anything that would ever happen again if he had in mind merely the fall of Jerusalem and the temple? And maybe you could sense my stress on the word merely, <laughs> if you know what I mean. Yeah. Again, though, here's where we're dealing with we have to take language – there's a two prong to this. One is a language and one is importance. Yeah. Dealing first with language, we have to take again the language on its own term. And this superlative, greater than ever or worse than ever, is completely common again in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Um, it's, it's frequently said throughout the Old Testament, there never has there arisen a king like this king and never will there be again. Well, wasn't Jesus greater than King Josiah? So th- all kinds of events throughout the Old Testament are said, this is this is the greatest and there won't be any more like it. And this is, you know, just absolutely terrible, or this is absolutely best. It was this exaggeration for effect. So that is the, the language thing. Well, before and, you, before you move on to the significance, it's interesting you mentioned the one you just did, because if I remember, and I, I don't have an encyclopedic memory of this issue, but if I remember correctly, there's actually one single book in the Old Testament in which in the span of mere chapters, one king is said to be unlike anybody that would ever come after him, and then a mere few chapters later, and the exact same thing is said of another king. Ex- right. I mean, and it's unless you think, um, you know, that the biblical authors were so stupid that they walked into Wall's face first and couldn't <laughs> remember what they wrote, you know, 10 verses before. This, it's just a common use of, of, uh, of biblical apocalyptic hyperbole. Yeah. I would also say, though, just to challenge it on the literalist ground, in, if you take, now this isn't going to be persuasive to everyone, I'm just speaking to your typical evangelical, if you believe in a global flood, where you had nearly every single living mm. thing on the planet being destroyed, except for you know a small handful alive on a boat, surely the Great Tribulation isn't going to be that bad. So if even if you just do percentages and math, it can't mean that. But in importance, the, the importance again of the temple and of God's presence in the temple cannot be overstated. This was catastrophic to them. And the fact is the temple has never been rebuilt. I don't believe based on theological grounds that it will ever be rebuilt. Attempts have been made that have been foiled. I think there's a reason why that's now a Muslim holy site, which basically ensures it will never be rebuilt. So the loss of this temple was quite literally the loss of everything that had been built up through the Old Testament. It was the the complete um, sweeping away of that Old Covenant for the New Covenant, and the people then would have understood the significance of that. They understood the significance of it when the temples were destroyed in the past. And the destruction of the temple made it now 
actually impossible to follow the Old Testament law. So no one could even be tempted to go do it again because it's impossible. So now you have different interpretations. Um, and I'm not trying to be disrespectful of anyone's faith. Um, but like rabbinic Judaism, which is its own interpretation on how do you, how do you be a Jewish person without the temple? Um, and all of that was because of what happened then. So the, the ripple and the spiritual and theological significance of the destruction of that temple is by far the worst thing that could have happened. Yeah. Um, worst isn't only described in terms of bodies on the ground, though there were a horrific number of bodies. And the way people died then is beyond our imagination. Siege warfare is something that we as moderns cannot even begin to understand. They were eating their children. Um, blood did literally flow on the streets. For us to minimize what happened then just shows our utter ignorance as to what did actually happen there. And it doesn't require it to be numerically or even in terms necessarily of horror worse than than any other thing like the Holocaust. You have to put all of the factors into place, particularly the the theological ones. And you can't just count the the number of dead bodies that, that you have. Right. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting. This is one of the reasons why I'm convinced, at least at this point, that the entire New Testament was written before 70 AD, because you don't find – this would have been such a significant event and the ramifications so significant afterwards that there would have been some spilling over, even unintentionally, into the words that were penned of the New Testament if this had happened within you know 20 years or whatever of their recent past. But you have nothing like that. You've got some prophets. Prophecy, um, but it's limited to those prophetic passages, and you just don't see that that having that that spilling out into everything else that they say. Um, it's really that's it, it would it was that significant that it would have spilled over. Do you know what I mean? Oh, it definitely would have. I mean, you look at the writings of Josephus, which we know when they were written, and it was after the fact. The destruction of the temple weighs heavily. On, it, it, it drips from his work. Yeah. It, it, it was just so important. It, it, it would be like forgetting, and, and this was originally brought up, I read it from Hank Hanegraaff, but I'm sure many other authors have, and maybe overseas listeners won't get this as much, but it would be like an American forgetting the terror attacks on 9-11. It's so seared into our national consciousness and was such a national blow to us in almost a metaphysical way almost any American. It was the same thing with the destruction of the temple. I would say the temple much more so. Oh, yes. But, but, I'm, 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 but yeah. I'm, I'm trying to relate it to something that we can relate to. Yeah. Something that we could go, oh, yeah, you know, it'd be after 9-11, someone writing a history of New York and not mentioning that. It would just be inconceivable. You would be able to date a history of New York just by the fact before or after that as to whether it mentioned that effect. I mean, that event. And I think you can do the same thing with these ancient documents around that time. If the document is a Jewish document or geared towards Jewish concerns and does not mention that event, it was written before. To me, that's an absolute no brainer. Yeah. I agree. Well, in the interest of time, I want to lump a number of subsequent verses together and ask you to just sort of tease our listeners with a very brief summary of how you addressed uh, uh, futurist objections from these verses. And I'm talking about the cosmic language ones, the verses in which Jesus likens his coming to lightning flashing from east to west, the darkening of the sun and the moon, the stars falling, the son of man coming on clouds. Obviously, these cosmic phenomena just did not happen in the first century, right? There's an 
there's an interesting parable that I reference in my <laughs> footnotes that some people have critiqued me for not putting it in the actual text of the commentary and putting it in a footnote. But I think it's probably only significant to the people who were around when it was originally said. Yeah. But you can't take language, determine what you decide it means, and then point to your meaning as proof it didn't happen. So again, I know people are probably getting tired and I'm going, well, you know, that's what the words say, but that isn't what they meant. But that is actually what I'm saying. Words aren't the words. That's the meaning intended to be conveyed by it. And even more so than all of this other language, we said this cosmic language is throughout the entire Bible when we know if this is language referring to the literal end of the world and the literal stars falling, the world would have ended 50 times already in the Old Testament. When nations rose and fell, it was always described with this cosmic language. And we know this because if you have a a new American, well, you know this just by reading the Old Testament. But besides that, there's a big clue of it in this. If you have a new American standard uh, Bible, I like the way it it sets off in a unique typeface when Jesus is either directly quoting or quoting close enough in an allusion to an Old Testament passage. They put it in the special font. And in the Olivet Discourse, when he's talking about this cosmic language, it, it, it does that, which means he's referring to an Old Testament passage. And if you go back to that passage in Isaiah, and I think it's 2421, but I'm speaking off memory. And it's, but the reference is in the book. He, he is referring to a past destruction of Babylon using the exact same language. So did the world end back then when this exact language was used for an event that we all know is past? I, I would submit that, that Jesus is doing a real clever rhetorical device here. The, um, Babylon in, in, to the Jewish idiom was almost like if you called someone today a Benedict Arnold. I mean, it brings in all this, you know, uh, angst and pathos of, uh, you know, traitor and all that. Well, Babylon was just like, that was shorthand for just awful, evil, sinful, rebellious against God. And so Jesus takes a passage that's referring in cosmic language to the destruction of Babylon and saying, that's what's going to happen to you folks. He's basically calling them Babylon. He's, yeah. he's kind of being kind of really insulting in his own way. And if we understand that he is directly quoting a already passed fulfilled passage, there's no reason then for us to think that this is all of a sudden becomes hyper literal. And that Babylon passage isn't the only time this happens. This happens again and again and again. And not just this um the moon will be darkened and the sun will fall and all this kind of language when cursings are pr- uh, pronounced upon a, a nation. What I found really interesting is when I discovered when blessings are described upon a nation in the Old Testament, it starts talking about the sun being 50 times brighter and all this like intensification. And it, believe me, it would not be a good thing, literally, if the sun got 50% brighter. So this is the... If, if you remember in Genesis, when it talks about the sun, moon, and stars being illustrative of nations, that's exactly what's going on in these passages. So when nations rise and nations fall, the Jewish idiom was to describe it in cosmic language. And we have a holdover of this today, as Gary DeMars pointed out, and the symbols of our flags are cosmic symbols. You see stars and you see moons. And that's 
something that is a holdover of just the the way we think of earthly powers as reflected in heavenly powers. And our language today even says that we call movie stars stars for mm. a reason. We tend to maybe not think about that, but it still is reflective. Or even I think I quote in the book and some of our, our language when I, I quote, I think it was a Carly Simon song where I feel the earth move under my feet. She isn't literally feeling an earthquake. Right. Or we say that rocked my world. We don't really mean that the earth came off its its axis. Yeah. And it's the same kind of language then. It is indeed was the destruction and the bringing down of everything of their world. Literally, yeah. their world was literally destroyed. Yeah. And and just to give our, our listeners a, a, a flavor of this, the, the NASB, it, do, it does do what you're talking about with verse 29, where it talks about the sun being darkened and so forth. And, and in the in the cross-references, it's got Isaiah 13, 10, for the stars of heaven and their constellations will flash forth to their light. Isaiah 24, 23, then the moon will be abashed and the sun ashamed, for the Lord of hosts will reign on Mount Zion. And, you know, Ezekiel 32, 7, and when I extinguish you, I will cover the heavens and darken their stars. Joel 2, 10, before them the earth quakes, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon grow dark, etc., etc. This goes on and on. And here's what I literally, just as the course of, while I was looking this up, just realized is even in Acts 2, in the in the speech in which Peter is saying that the Joel, the prophecy of Joel is being fulfilled in their midst of God pouring out his spirit, right? Even in that passage, Acts 2.20, what does he quote? What does he say? The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. And he's saying that this is what is happening now, right then. Right right then. then. You know, it's 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 pretty um, it's pretty amazing. It well, is, and it's hard for us to understand, but we do have to take the Bible on its own terms, and that's what I really try to do in the commentary. I'm not gonna, I, I don't just make an assertion. I go, well, let's look at how similar language or similar concepts are used in other passages that are relatively non-controversial that we can po- potentially agree. And what's funny right now, Chris, is that. We've made our entire case pretty much, and I say we because you and I are on the same page, without once mentioning a timing passage. And the timing <laughs> passages seal the deal. The timing passages are uh, don't, don't give don't don't <laughs> because that's literally this, this next question I have for you. So, a, sorry, I got excited. Right. It's okay. We're so on the same page that the very question, I'm, I'm, listeners, I, I'm, I promise you that I'm being honest when I say that every time I have interviewed Didi, including this time, I've not given her the questions in advance, and yet somehow, literally, the very next question I had prepared is the one that she was about to answer. So I'll, I'll ask that question and then let you let the cat out of the bag. Um, there's, there's a lot more to this discourse. And we could spend a lot of time discussing what you go into depth in your commentary on, but I do want to skip ahead to that timing verse in this passage, uh, verse 34, because it is so critical to, the, to this debate. I mean, as you quote Thomas Isis saying in the beginning of your, of your book, when you talk to a preterist, get ready to hear the words this generation at least eight dozen times if you have an extended conversation. Um, and as, even, as you know, you've devoted a full four chapters of your book to this one verse alone. So what is it that Jesus says that seems so powerfully to lend itself to our view, to, to, to seal the deal, as you put it? And why don't you think that the common futurist answers to it do his words justice? That for for most people who come to our point of view, this is the gateway for them. Rather than me, it was First uh, Corinthians fifteen. But it's the import of these words are really important. I'm going to read the passage before we talk about it. It's Matthew twenty four thirty four, and uh, Jesus in capping the in in closing, arguably his answer to the disciples' questions of 
when will these things be? Referring to the destruction of the temple, um, Jesus answers the question and says, assuredly, he's answering their when question. This generation will by no means take away till all these things take place. And he's echoing their exact question. And we, you cannot let the force of the phrase, this generation, get past your ears. We, we've tended to get very comfortable as modern Christians with the explaining away of this. And I, and Thomas Ice, it was a funny quote. <laughs> and I, I, it, it's true. If you talk to a preterist, you are going to hear the words, this generation, probably way more than you've ever wanted to hear it in your life. I'm going to make a, a, a slight libertarian joke here, too. It's like talking to a libertarian. You're going to hear the phrase non-aggression principle every other sentence. And there's a reason for that. This is very, very important. What immediately comes to mind, this generation, is the people he's talking to. That's why some of these more quote-unquote, paraphrase, modern English translations will say, the people standing here will not pass away till all these things take place. And I think it was D.A. Carson who said that the phrase, this generation, can only with the greatest difficulty, and I think he was being charitable, mm. be made to mean anything other than the people who were there listening to him. Is Don Carson a, a preterist? Uh, I don't think so. So he but, was admitting that his own position was greatly difficult. <laughs> well, I, I, I think what he does is try to maybe separate out. Okay. You know, I'm not sure, to be honest with you. Um, I, I, I've been one of those people where this is good and bad. I don't pay terribly that much attention to – this sounds bad, but I guess it, I have to admit my bad faults, I suppose, what a lot of other people have thought. I, mm. I kind of came at this uh, passage virgin. I wanted to know what I was going to think about it. And then when I happened to read things that confirmed it, I'm like, aha, that's really good. Um, but I know he did say that what his view is in total. I, I don't know. I confess okay. ignorance there. I'm sorry for but derailing I, your train. Oh, no, that's okay. It's a good question. So I, I um, presented a four-prong argument that I think – you can you can argue for preterism just from this particular verse, though we've done it. We we hadn't mentioned it up until now. Um, Thomas Ice would be would be disappointed. <laughs> um, the the first prong is I said is that the phrase this generation, you can't take just what some people do is just take the word generation by itself and try to parse it out to where it it might mean something else. But Jesus didn't say generation; he said this generation. The the near demonstrative this makes all the difference in the world. And the fact is that this phrase, this generation was almost a pejorative in the way Jesus used it. And leading up what we started out this interview with when he was exoriating the unbelievers of his day, he kept using specifically to them, this generation, this generation, just generation to, to put it, it'd be like how people today might say pejoratively, you people. Mm. Um, and, and, and that's how it meant, whether we, we like Jesus maybe using a phrase that way, it is what it is. And so I think if you go and look at everywhere else in the New Testament that the phrase this generation is used, it is pretty indisputable that it's referring to the people then living. Some Especially people, leading up to Matthew, or uh, leading yeah. up to this passage. Now, I've had people try to argue, and I have the whole other notes in my computer that it didn't in any of the other times, but I think that's really weak. So that's one means. And if I could prove that, that would prove it. But I have three others. <laughs> um, and I think number two is actually the, the, the most powerful 
But people, I don't think, always grasp this argument. But when you grasp it, and, and it's not because I'm smarter, it's just I'm probably wording it badly. The destruction of the temple then standing, to me, even if you don't get all of the other language and you think it could somehow refer to the future, the destruction of the temple then standing is by its nature, a unique, non-repeatable event. You can only destroy that temple once. And if the destruction of the temple then standing is one of all these things, which uh. was to happen within a specific time period, it pushes everything back into that same time period. Because while there may be repeats of wars and rumors of wars or repeats of other things in the passage. You can't repeat the destruction of a unique item. Once it's happened, it's happened. And that forces everything into the time frame of a generation within that when that happened. And to me that that's the deal killer right there. Um did I lose you? No no I'm here. Oh, okay. <laughs> the <laughs> silence boop a pin drop. Uh so that, I think, is an important argument. And I'm right. glad. I, I think maybe you finally got what I was saying at that point. I'm not so sure I've always explained that very well. No, I, 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 I understood. In okay. fact, I think, I think you capture it well at the beginning of the chapter you're talking about. You, this, is how you, this is how you start your chapter. Proof number two. The destruction of the temple then standing in AD 70 limits the fulfillment of the rest of the passage to the same time frame. And, and yeah, I agree. If, 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 uh, if Jesus says that what they're talking about was to take place within this generation, and if that includes the destruction of this temple, then, uh, then and that can't be repeated, and he can't be talking about some future, uh, some future temple being destroyed. That wouldn't be what they were. What, what he was saying would be destroyed. He was saying about he was saying something uh, would be destroyed that was in fact destroyed within the time frame of the uh, the generation to whom he was speaking. Right. It, it, this is granting that this generation doesn't mean them. It could mean any generation. Well, right. the minute you place a non-repeatable event, you know it has to be that generation. So it proves it without even getting into the this. Um, the third one is that there are. Other in the Gospel of Matthew, near time frame indicators outside of Matthew 24 that deal with the same um, subject and talk about this generation. And I was talking specifically of Matthew 16, 27 through 28, which is also a very thorny passage that futurists have a hard time explaining. And in Jesus and that says, um, there are some standing here who will not taste death, another way of saying this generation, but I think in a way that's even clearer <laughs> clearer you can't get out of this it's you guys standing here some of you won't be dead until you see the son of man coming in his kingdom oh but that, they're just talking about the the mount of transfiguration dd they okay i think <laughs> that is a weird possibility but i'm just kidding no I, it is what most people say isn't yeah. it when it is it happen? is in rela- when did that happen oh. in relation to his words Days what? later. Days later. I could prophesy that you won't be dead in a couple days. <laughs> that, that's not something you want to put in Jesus's mouth. And that event, how, if you're going to argue with me that Jesus's coming couldn't possibly have been described in Matthew 24, you're going to tell me that you accept that his transfiguration was his coming? That is, that's a double standard. You're, you're, you're immediately granting the point that coming isn't something that you take hyper literally. Yeah. So you've basically sold the farm with that argument. They'll start doing, well, it was a foretaste or a foreshadowing. That isn't what he said. You can make that argument, but I think it's extraordinarily weak, especially when you pair it with, um, Luke's description in Matthew 24, where it parallels the language used in Matthew 16, 27, where he says, you'll see the son of man coming in his kingdom. But Matthew 10, 23 also says that 
you won't go through the the, the cities of uh, it was Israel before the Son of Man comes. Yep. So there's a, another event that says something something catastrophic is going to happen that you will not finish your task. And what's your task? Going through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. And if you pair that with the the same coming language and the same timing language in Matthew 24 and its parallels Luke 21 and Mark 13, I think that's also makes it undisputable. But I, I have a I have an, another point, and point number four was that the context of Olivet discourse when you start talking about specific instructions like flee to the mountains, um, it, it's clearly limited to first century Judea. It's not talking about some worldwide configuration because if that were true, you and I could escape the destruction of America by fleeing to the mountains of Judea. That doesn't make any sense. Yeah. It's obviously not talking about black helicopters and nuclear bombs. Whatever type of event this is, is one that you could escape by fleeing Judea. So it's something that's limited to first century Judea. And then you have the things like don't come down from your rooftops. I don't know about you, but we don't hang out in the roofs in Colorado. Um, pray that your flight be not in the Sabbath. I don't worry about going anywhere on the Sabbath. Um, modern conveniences, while in some third world countries, perhaps being pregnant is really, really inconvenient um, and highly treacherous. It's really not so much for us. Yeah. in first world developed countries. So all of those warnings are applicable to a, to a pre-modern society, specifically Judea. So those are my, um, my, my, my four points that I used to support that the timing statement means precisely what it appears at first blush to mean. And as you know, it's not the only timing statement in the New Testament. Mm. There are numerous timing statements in the New Testament, particularly the book of Revelation. And I remember when I was still a futurist and I was speaking with my non-believing ex-husband at the time, and I I was reading to him a passage from Revelation, and he said, stop, say that again. And it was the one that said that the time is at hand, and these things are near, and soon he's like, what? Hasn't it been 2,000 years? And I was, you know, when when you come at it with, with fresh eyes, it really doesn't make much sense. Right. So the way to reconcile all of these these timing passages i think is to come to the realization that something very significant was indeed prophesied to happen yeah. and we do have such an event that is laid out very clearly yeah i agree well, there's so much more we could talk about, but I've taken up a ton of your time and I don't have uh, an unlimited supply of it myself. So I want to start to conclude our time together by discussing the conclusion to your book in a chapter appropriately titled, So What's at Stake? Uh, many Christians understandably ask that very question or, or one like it when challenged with our view of the end times. Well, why does this debate matter? They'll ask. Well, in this chapter, you offer what I gather to be two answers to that question. Uh, and if you'll bear with me while I formulate a very lengthy question, I want to challenge you on one of those two answers first before turning to the other one, to which I can offer a hearty amen. Despite that you and others have fully convinced me of preterism and, and either amillennialism or postmillennialism, I, I tend to be an amill at this point, but that could change one day. There is a related issue about which you and I do disagree, and that has to do with Israel. Uh, I don't expect you and all my other fellow preterists and non-premillennialists to share my Israelology, but if you'll forgive me for offering just a bit of hopefully constructive criticism, uh, and if you'll understand the, the heart from which I offer it, uh, there is one comment you make 
Okay, hearing... I'm going to make a joke. You already called me a, 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 a foul-mouthed, politically obsessed person. So what can I get offended at? I'm joking uh, with you. Yeah, I'm right. joking with you. Yeah, I might as well call you an anti-Semite too. Right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, <laughs> but, and you, but you know that's like completely not true. But I totally agree with you. It isn't true at all. But but there is a comment that you make here in the conclusion that, that does sting a little bit, um, and, and which I think is going to potentially cast a bit of a shadow on your entire book in the minds of at least some of the very people that you're trying to reach. Because here, here's what you write: It is even more dreadful. In my opinion, when Matthew 24 is futurized to appeal to fleshly desires and ethnic vanities, to vault an Israel of the flesh over the Israel of God, one which is made up of all ethnic groups, with none inferior and none superior to the other, and all as one man uh, to come to Mount Zion. Now, besides taking issue with your interpretation of Galatians 6.16, which is something we could spend a whole couple of hours talking about, the reason I suggest, the reason I say that this stings is because the Messianic Jews that I know and the dispensationalist Gentiles I know, uh, don't hold the view that they do because of fleshly desires or ethnic vanities, and they don't vault an Israel of the flesh over the Israel of God, and they don't think that Jews are superior to Gentiles, believing or otherwise. Uh, and, and, and neither are these things true of me and what I believe. But unfortunately, it seems to me, and I stress that, I could be mistaking what you're saying. By implying that these are what motivate and characterize a non-covenantal view of Israel and a premillennial futurist reading of Matthew 24, you might prompt a number of readers to dismiss much of what you've said as driven by equally unsavory motives. So, so here's a question. Here's that was a lot of buildup, I know, uh, and I hope you'll forgive me for that. But what, but what would you say to those dispensationalists listening whose love for Israel and their futurist reading of texts like Matthew 24 don't really fit that description that you've offered in your conclusion, and who might have otherwise read your conclusion and come away a bit reeling uh, about what it is that you said. Okay, here's what I say, and I'm probably going to word this badly. This this probably would have been one that would have been helpful to know the question in advance, but it's better to just get my spontaneous answer. <laughs> I, as an outsider, see, and I'm not saying it's necessarily, necessarily in you, but just like you had offered some constructive criticisms about peculiar obsessions of mine, I think sometimes coming from an outsider, I could tell you as an outsider, those motivations appear to be there in lesser degrees and in greater degrees with some people. And I would say in extraordinarily lesser degrees to you personally, and I'm not saying that to massage your ego, because (laughs) I would tell you to your face if I thought there was something in there. But this is a generalization, but I've spent a lot of time in dispensational circles, and particularly in Calvary Chapel-esque dispensational circles. And I'm sorry, this really was present. And it might not have been entirely recognized by the people who had it. And I've spent a lot of time with Messianic Jewish groups, and I have seen this. Not in all. I know some Reformed Messianic Jewish groups that this wouldn't apply to at all. But I have seen it enough that I think that this is fair for enough people. It's not just like the Bible, biblical language isn't intended to be universalistic. Um, I'm not intending this to be, but I, I see at least some aspects of this in a lot of people. Um, so while some might think it's unfair, listen, I'll take that criticism to heart and maybe think it is, but I spent enough time and seen enough of it that I think there's a, there, there's a grain there's a grain of truth in it. And I do think, okay, uh, I'm going to seem like a rabbit trail. <laughs> Atheists will get offended to us when we say, 
you know there's a God or eternity's been hidden in your heart where we're saying that we know better than what they do about what their own mind is. And I understand why they would get offended by that. So in light of my understanding of the New Testament and what I believe it teaches about the Galatians, the Galatians passages, for instance, about the, the, the removing of all these ethnic identities and the fusing into one body and the the way it rebuked people who rejected that as having certain motivations. I think biblically based that I have grounds to say that those motivations still exist, even if they aren't recognized by the people holding them. And the same way that biblically, I think we can say that non-believers know there's God, even though in their conscious mind, they will deny it and be very insulted when you say that. Now, I don't know if that made any sense. Oh, no, it, it was perfectly clear and, and reasonable. Um, but but would you but would you be prepared to say that there are uh, certain to be a fair number of people who hold a dispensation? view of Israel, um, who uh, for, for whom that description just is not accurate. I'm not saying everybody who claims that it's not accurate of them that it's not accurate of them. But but would you agree that there's got to be that that you can't be certain that everybody shares? Those oh, I, I haven't met everybody. Okay. So <laughs> okay, I, I I can just say that it's 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 generally enough true that I think it's accurate, and I think it's particularly generally enough true in bodies, ministries, and churches that emphasize the dispensational view. I mean, when you have a church, and and again, I'm not meaning to slam on Calvary because, listen, Calvary got me to where I'm at, and I do have my criticisms of Calvary, but they're a fantastic church, and anyone that's going there that's getting fed, stay. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm hear my heart on this, but you have a church, at least the one I went to, where you had the flag, and you know my objections to flags in general. I'm not <laughs> even going to go there, but you had the flag of the nation of Israel up by the pulpit, and I'm sorry that says something, and they may have done it with the best of intentions, but. That's the type of circles that you got to understand that I'm going to be writing from my experiences and my experiences aren't yours. And in my experiences, and, and I've had quite a bit of involvement with, um, Messianic Jews as well. Um, that before I got interested in eschatology, um, studying Jewish background and Jewish history, and I was going to, um, a, a, a messianic fellowship for a while. It was very, very interesting to me. Um, which I guess in one hand is why if even anyone ever suggested that I have the slightest animosity to Jewish people would just send me through the roof because <laughs> yeah. as a non-dispensational pers- uh, person, I have a tremendous love for the culture and the people. Um, and actually, whether or not we end up agreeing on certain things, that the history of church anti-Semitism is part of the background of what drove me into this study as well, because I've mentioned in the book that I think when you start making these judgment passages in in our future, if you're going to be consistent, if you go back to Matthew 23, you are unwittingly condemning Jewish people of all time, which horrifies me. Yeah, It horrifies me to my core. So, I, you know, this is somewhat disjointed, I, I, I guess, but the opposite end of the spectrum, though, I think, I think denying the, 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 the removal of ethnic barriers where you, you and I, again, on some points of that will disagree, sure. I think is a very critical error. And I might have worded that strongly, but 
it is what I believe. And I, if it, if someone's going to dismiss everything else on one thing they really disagree with, I mean, that's kind of weak. I, I doubt I've read any book where there isn't anything that I don't go, um, I almost used a bad word again, that I don't <laughs> lose my mind over something that I don't agree with. So I would hope that someone who made it that far and gave it a fair reading would go, eh, she's wrong on that. I, I, I hear you. I do. But, but, but it is kind of human nature. And, and, and to use what is basically the exactly opposite uh, example, um, I know that there are many who believe, and I, I think there's a certain grain of truth to this in the same way that you think there's a grain of truth to what you've been saying, that, that much of the history of supersessionism or covenant theology or whatever has its roots, not all of it, has its roots in uh, the history of anti-Semitism in the church. And yet if a dispensationalist were to offer that in, in part of a critique or particularly in closing a critique uh, against uh, against a covenantal view of, of Israel, um, they would – many of, of those – of the readers of that critique would in a similar vein, unintentionally even – Sort of dismiss everything that had just been said because it seems to those it seems to them as what they're what's happening here is 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 they're just being called anti semites and oh well if somebody's just going to call me an anti semite I don't care about what they have to say you know and and so in a similar way I'm can I just I care about I care about this issue as passionately as you I think or at least almost <laughs> I don't want to but 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 pretty passionately and and I happen to know that there are many people in that community who um, think that our view is tightly coupled with either anti-Semitism or at least a covenantal view of Israel. I don't think that tight coupling is there. Uh, I'm proof that it's not. I but, think it has been there, though. So I don't think that's entirely unfair if someone points that out. Um, so in a way, I would say I understand how you're saying this doesn't apply to you, and you know your mind better than I do. Um, there are some criticisms of the history of non-dispensational thought, we could call it, that have been virulently anti-Semitic. And I know that, which is why I took great pains to show earlier in the commentary on how the exact opposite conclusion sure. was at least reached by my study. But I wouldn't think that historical criticism would be entirely unfair. And it's something that we as a church need to own I think Dr. Michael Brown has said that enough times, and I think he is correct. But I also think my closing statement was, let's say somebody was critiquing specific covenantal arguments, and then at the end made a statement where this leads to um, – certain anti-Semitic views, I would think they would have grounds for that statement. I think in my statement, and I don't mean to interrupt you, I'm kind no, of going a little longer. <laughs> I, I think in my statement, it is a conclusory statement to my very strident defense earlier on how we need to avoid that. And you're, you're a non, you're, you've got, I don't want to call it a dispensational view because it's not the type of, your type of dispensationalism or whatever we want to call it is not, <laughs> is not the same kind I'm dealing with in my book. Uh. So, again, you're not of the type of mold that I came from and that I'm used to dealing with. So I could have a lack of experience where maybe if I had 
had more interaction or if that's more what I was dealing with, that it would have been worded a little differently. But for the type of typical left behindism, dispensational megachurch uh, type of theology I'm dealing with, I, I do think it's fair. And I'm sorry if it offends any people, but like the statements or critiques that are often put towards me, whenever I get a little offended, it's the best step is to step back and consider whether there's any truth in it. And if there's not, you just say that person is wrong. Well, I mean, that's just kind of how, how I do things. Sure. And, and, and hopefully, you know, hopefully uh, our listeners have thicker skin than I do <laughs> because I'm, I'm the first to admit that I'm, that I'm, well, I, I apologize. Concerned. I really do. If that offended you, that it was never my intent. And sometimes when you write things, you do not know how they're going to be received. So I appreciate the opportunity to say that wasn't my intent, but it was my intent to cause maybe some critical self-examination. Sure. And I think that's always helpful, which is maybe why I've developed some th- thick skin. And I don't mind people lobbing accu- accusations, not the right word, criticisms at my way. Yeah. Because I like stepping back and going, hmm, maybe that is a little fair. Sure. So I guess that's really all I'm encouraging. And honestly, sincerely, no personal offense meant to anybody i know that and and um hopefully that helps listeners that you know if they had otherwise come to that conclusion in the book and not had a chance to hear you explain what you just said hopefully this gives them some context and helps them to realize that you're not necessarily not necessarily saying that this is what motivates the person reading it um but it is something to consider um and also i hope that our listeners will gather that uh that preterism although you although some preterists might think that in order to be consistent one must hold to a uh, if one is going to be a preterist you, one must also hold to some sort of a covenantal view of israel hopefully i'm proving that at least that might not be the case because I think well, you know Chris that I do think you need to be consistent and, and hold to it I know, I told I know. Israel. but then again here let, let me get your barbin on me I know you think if I were to be consistent I should be an annihilationist so there you go or even I think if you were to just read scripture you'd be an annihilationist but no I'm just kidding no I, I, I hear what you're saying though Chris I haven't studied that issue extensively I admit that I know. And I I have no burning desire to do it right at this point. And you might be right. You know, I've said that all along. Well, I'll tell you what, maybe one day we'll talk about an article. I'll I'll be honest with you. I'll be forthright. I never told you this. Uh, Early on in the Ministry of Rethinking Hell, I wrote an article called Consistency in Preterism, uh, Annihilationism and Revelation, uh, the Book of Revelation or something like that. And the case that I made was that one cannot properly consistently hold to a preterist understanding of the Book of Revelation and hold to a traditional view of hell. And I wrote that hoping that you might see that on my feed or something and read it. I don't know if you ever did. Did. But if you ever do get a chance to read it, I'd love to know what you think privately and, and to see what you think of my argument, you know, even if even if you think it's bogus. So, so yeah, there are certain things you think I ought to believe if I were consistent preterism and the reverse is true. So we'll, we'll have that discussion another time. Um, after, okay, well, look, going back to the commentary. After that uncomfortable excursion, <laughs> maybe uncomfortable, into an area of disagreement between us, uh, let's conclude our look into your book with the other answer that you offer in this chapter to the question of this issue's importance, right? Uh, an answer, an answer with which I wholeheartedly agree. In fact, we talked about this at length in our, in the, the interview that I did with you a number of years ago on my show. And that has to do with the veracity and the vindication of Christ and, and the, and the, um, uh, the, the truthfulness and, and verifiability of, of, uh, Christ's prophetic, um, ability. You know what I mean? C- can you, can you explain that for us and why it is that this is so critical? Well, it- This will tie back to what we started in the beginning. Um, These timing statements, they are 
top tools in the in, in the skeptical war chest. So I think when we can show that there is a very logical, reasonable, um, coherent way to understand this that doesn't make Christ out into a false prophet, that that is very powerful. But I also think that the whole point of this prophecy is to provide to, um, it's a post-evangelistic strengthener um, to Christians. I I believe we're intended by God to read it and go, yes, this... this happened. This proves that Christ was who he said he was. His his claims were absolutely vindicated. And that's the subject of that little free book. It's in the um in one of my end notes, or someone could could write me to, to get a link to it, which I think it was in the 1800s called The Destruction of Jerusalem, an Irresistible Proof of the Divine Origin of Christianity. I love the way they wrote those long <laughs> book titles back yeah. then. But it's, it, it is. That, that book, uh, my jaw was open. I believe that was the point of God including that in scripture. It was to provide us empirical proof. It was said, and it happened so precisely as it was said, that I think we're doing scripture a great disservice when we don't see that. It's like people shouting, God, show me you exist. He does. And you're like, where? Yeah. You know, I, it, it's to me, and, and I'm, Okay, I'm a skeptical person. I have a highly rationalistic mind. I Faith does not come easy to me. It still doesn't come easy to me, and I struggle with it constantly. But this has been a bedrock. This has really, really strengthened my faith. But I'm the person in, what's it, Mark? I can't remember the passage, the, the address of it, but where the, the, the man said to Christ, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. That's me. That's me every yeah. day. I doubt constantly. And I've spoken and written on that quite a bit because I think doubt is the, the, that's the obscenity in Christian circles. <laughs> you know, people will be more upset with me saying I doubt rather than some of the other stuff I might say. So in that respect, I think it's very valuable for the strengthening of the individual Christian's faith and to use to other, for other Christians, to Christian on Christian to strengthen their faith. Yeah, that's very good. And, and like I said, I, I wholeheartedly amen. Well, I'm hoping that this little teaser for your book will interest listeners enough to get their hands on a copy and read through your very thorough case and commentary for themselves. I mean, look, we're we're dealing here with just one chapter in the whole Bible, and yet your commentary is nearly 200 pages long, not counting the appendices. Three, three, well, yeah, the commentary, yeah. And there's yeah. Four, 400 endnotes, I think. Yeah, that's right, over 440 endnotes, and then, of course, the appendices. Um, and... and I'm sorry, I have to say this. I did say end notes, not footnotes, and and you have the, the 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 our listeners have the publishing service to blame for that. But but many of those end notes will have some very useful and important information as well. So so there's a ton to ingest and digest and to consider very carefully. And I really truly believe that the objective listener to the to the conversation that we've had today uh, will, having heard this interview, come away acknowledging that there's something worth considering in our case. Now, I'm going to ask you in just a moment how it, how it is that you recommend listeners get their hands on a copy. But before we wrap up, you've been on the show before. You've listened to probably to at least one or two other episodes. And, and as you know, I often end my interviews by asking my guests to offer our listeners a parting message Something that they hope that listeners will take away and remember if everything else had been forgotten, you know, that we've talked about in a very long interview like this one. So what what kind of message might you uh, leave our listeners with today? Oh, Lord, have mercy. You're putting me on the spot. I like to do that. And, oh, that is wide. I guess, you know, 
my message always has just been to Christians in general, and this is going somewhat off the reservation here of what we've talked about, but I've been a Christian now, 96, I can't count, since 1996, so however long that is, it's nearly, nearly 20 years, and been through ups and downs, and just have to say that the, the journey is entirely worth it, and I'm not some great talent or great exegete, but I was able to produce this book that I hope would help a lot of people. And I would just encourage other people to, to, to dig in and use whatever talents they have. And with the, the struggles that I've been with, with a lot of bad times, to encourage people that there's, there, there is something better on the other end. And actually, sometimes the struggles are the blessing. Mm. So there is, again, kind of off topic of what we said, but I, I think a lot of Christian conversation is to my thing. And this goes back to the criticisms you might have said to me in the beginning where I might get a little spicy in my language. <laughs> it was something that's become very important to me in my Christian walk is authenticity. And I know that's a postmodern buzzword, but with me, you're not going to get a different person here or online, or in per, or, or face-to-face. It, it's the same. And I think unbelievers or the world resonates with authenticity, even if you might be a little rough around the edges, mm. that it's more important to be a flawed real person than a perfect fake one. Yeah. And I hope that is helpful to somebody. <laughs> I, I am sure it will be, and, and I agree wholeheartedly. Well, so I said a couple of times that I'd, I'd be asking you where people can go to buy your book. Oh. Where, where do you recommend that um, that people go to get a copy of your book online? I mean, right now the easiest is Amazon. So, and Amazon actually has it at a little bit cheaper price than directly through the publisher, who's Zulan. So, I would either recommend either, and I think Amazon has it cheaper than iBook. And you probably are laughing because I'm not a big fan of iBooks. And you know what a big Apple fan I am. That hasn't changed. Um, (laughs) It's okay. It's okay. You know, I I was let go from Microsoft a a number of months ago, so I'm not quite the loyalist that I I might once have been. Well, you laugh. I'm wearing an Apple shirt right now. And the back says, don't panic. Wait, you're using Windows. Okay, panic. (laughs) (laughs) So um, Amazon is where I'd recommend because it's a couple bucks cheaper. And I just am a huge fan of Amazon and their service is great. And if you, if they, someone does go and get it and they like it, please leave a positive review because I have some haters out there that I know I'm going to get these whacked out weird reviews. Um, and so I, I, I would greatly appreciate it. I've got two really good reviews on there now. So it would be, it's not the end of the world by Dee Dee Warren at Amazon and, my goal in writing this, believe me, self-publishing costs a lot of personal money. I'm not making anything off this. I'll be happy if 10 years from now I break even. Um, I wrote this to be of use to people. So I want it to get in people's people's hands. The the scripture index at, uh, index at the end, if you're like me, anyone is like me, that's what's going to be valuable to you because you can pick this thing up. And read it from beginning to end. I would have a hard time doing that because I get I get sick of myself after a while. I'm like, <laughs> shut up! I'm saying to myself. But if there's a particular passage, you can go to the end and boom, you 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 go right there. Did you put, did you put that scripture index together yourself manually? Oh my goodness, I had to do that. It took months. You know, I bet you I can relate because I did the exact same thing with with uh, with our book. I put that I put that thing together manually, and boy, that is a that is a challenge. It's a challenge, and I had a couple friends who are who are thanked, 
in the acknowledgements who helped me with that without that. And I have to give a shout out to Paul League who, who helped me edit this thing. I mean, everyone who helped me on this just did it. I mean, nobody got paid to do this. They just did it and were, were fantastic. But yes, we had to do that manually. And I had to hand code except for one pass where there was a macro, but because all the numbering got messed up when I had to delete some end notes, I had to hand code all those too. Oh man. <laughs> 440 of them. Yeah, that's crazy. <laughs> is, is there, um, uh, if there's not a, and if there's not already, is there plans to be a, a Kindle edition available? There is a Kindle edition already available and it's significantly cheaper. I think it's nine ninety nine, but it doesn't have the scripture index. Ah. So my personal view of course, you could always just do a word search through Kindle, um, but if if budget's an issue or some people just prefer ebooks, I'm still old school. I'm the older generation, so it is available for a much more reasonable price on um, on Kindle. But it will not have the scripture index. I am planning on hand creating a scripture index and putting it up on the website for the book that'll have location numbers. But I'm so burnt out right now from this book. Yeah, um, I'm not sure when I'm going to do that, but. It will be done eventually, but I personally, I like the hard copies with the scripture index. So, you know, other people's mileage may vary, but yeah, there's a reasonably priced Kindle version as well. And, and, and I know that in, uh, in the preface, you explain that you really don't have the time any longer to answer detailed questions or to get into arguments, but you do encourage readers to reach out to you if they've found your book helpful or for whatever reason. So if, if people want to get in touch with you uh, to say thanks or what have you, how can they, how can they do that? Okay, um, this is going to get into a little bit of the weeds. So there is an author page where you could send me a message on Facebook. So if you look up Dee Dee Warren, but also long, long, long story, but I mention it in the um, in the preface. That's a pseudonym I write under. Um, and in the preface, it'll have the I believe this what my my government name is and all that. So you can follow me on Facebook. I appreciate getting the friends. You just shoot me a friend request. But fair warning, as we discussed earlier, though, if someone's listening to this interview 10 years from now, it might be different. But right now, it's going to be very light on theology. But if you don't mind political rantings um, of a libertarian bent, uh, of an extremely libertarian bent, of a radical libertarian <laughs> bent, as maybe is the way I should put it, um, I, I welcome the friendship on Facebook. And every once in a while, I'll get into theology. And, and I don't, I don't like debating it much anymore. But you know, questions here or there that, that, that aren't really getting into, you know, extreme. Yeah, basically I, I welcome. And also though, if you, if you buy it and you post a picture of it, I will put you up on my webpage. <laughs> I know from experience. That's right. And, uh, and, and, you know, you didn't mention this, but you did in the preface, you've also got, uh, the DD Warren at gmail.com email address. If people want to reach out to you I there. Do. And, and, and that is active and, Yes, you, you definitely can reach out to me there. Um, but generally, the best place to find me right now is Facebook. All right. Well, listen, I want to thank you so much for your time and, and also for your friendship. And also for one other thing, you know, you've done me a big honor here, at least in my opinion, which has given me the honor of being the first to interview you uh, in, in uh, to discuss your book. That, that means a lot to me, and I really appreciate it. So I just wanted to say thanks. And, and, and thanks for your time as well. You're welcome. I hope you have an awesome night. Well, there you have it. I hope you enjoyed the interview as much as I did conducting it and listening once or twice since. As usual, if you have any feedback, send me an email at chris at theapologetics.com. And I hope that you'll join me for the next episode of the Theapologetics Podcast. Podcast.